Hi, good morning everyone. This is Seeking Sustainability Live number 210. I'm JJ Walsh in Hiroshima. Today I'm talking with Chelsea Sandy Sheeter, who's in Tokyo, and we're talking about her new book, Coed Revolution. And we will start in just a minute or so. With Hi, thanks for joining today. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, check out inboundambassador.com and you can also find me on buymeacoffee.com slash JJ Walsh to get some bonus information and insights from the series. Great for people to get on. So Chelsea, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And thank you so much for sending me the book. It's really really fascinating really in, enjoyed it i want to say enjoyed but also horrified by many things inside but also i i was thinking of it reminded me of the three eyes it was like important informative and insightful oh. in in so many ways that every every page every chapter that i'm reading i'm thinking what i didn't know that but i should know that I've lived in Japan almost 30 years. So it was really a powerful book and something we definitely need um, to document the history of feminist movement and the history of feminist activists in Japan. So how did it start? Tell us, well, how did well, you get involved? All, I just want to say I'm thrilled to hear that because I've been so deep in this history and this story for so long now that it it um uh i mean authors talk about this you know people who become specialists talk about this quite frequently that you you tend to forget that that nobody else knows about this right that you're kind of in your own head um in many ways um but but this book actually started the seed of it was planted a really long time ago so i first came to japan in 1996 and i was a high school exchange student. Um, I lived in Tsukuba, in Ibaraki, uh, and I was uh, I came with the Rotary Club. So I was a Rotary Club exchange student in high school, and I was 16 years old. And um, my host family was just such an interesting family. Um, and the dad had been a journalist for Gigi Tsushin, and he had studied... Um, uh, the Russian language, and he'd been very interested in Soviet nuclear politics, and he'd been of the Zengakuren generation, so kind of the late 50s, early 1960s student movement generation. And then the mom had been at Waseda during the, the Zeng Kyoto, so the kind of later 60s student movement. And she was this fascinating woman who had um, studied abroad in India for a year, um, uh, studied abroad in England, worked at the Egyptian embassy, um, was very curious about the Middle East, and that kind of came out of the late 1960s student movement as well. And so she, and she's very charismatic, and she would regale me with these stories of like students blo blockading the streets in Tokyo and throwing rocks at the police. And it was just so um, unimaginable to me. I mean, there is a certain myth or this certain idea of harmonious Japanese society. And when you go to a place like Tokyo, it, it is a crazy city in some ways, but it is so orderly. And the idea of people like, and students, right, the idea of like university students, like throwing rocks at the police in Tokyo, just was so, um, there was such a, a disjunct to me. And I was like, well, I'd like to read a book about this someday. And then there just really wasn't anything to read in English um, for a really long time. Now there's like more stuff even in in, in English in the re within recent years. And that kind of perception gap between the Japan that I came into from the mid-1990s um, and then this really fairly recent history of really um, uh really a dynamic protest, um, a really widespread protest, really violent protest. It just wasn't integrated into Japan's post-war history, I felt. And so that was that was how I first got interested. And then when I started to look at this movement, um, you know, I, I 
I came from kind of a gender studies perspective already, but when I first decided I wanted to look at this topic in graduate school, um, women seemed to play these very key symbolic roles in the movement, even though I was being told that women didn't really participate in the movement. I was told this is a male movement, this was a boys movement, and then there was a separatist kind of women-only feminist movement. But then if that was the case, why were there these like highly symbolic women who seemed to play really important roles in like the public perception of what the movement was doing? Um, so where did they come from? Um, and then how did they experience their participation? Um, and then how, uh, you know, what was the, what are the roots to this idea that there had to be a women only movement? Um, these were all these questions that, that, uh, led me to think about, um, the student movement from the perspective of the female student activist. And also because, you know, in post-war Japanese society, um, young women, whether they were activists or not, also were symbols of a fresh start and post-war democracy. And uh, what do we know about when women become symbols? Sometimes they're evacuated of voice. They can't be real people anymore. So what does that mean too? So so it was kind of this mash um, that came together, all these many threads coming together over a very long time. And then I went and did archival research and, and tried to, to read and understand um, uh, texts of the time. Um, I did do a few interviews, but I don't really heavily deal with like an oral history or interviews um, because I wanted to see how these things were discussed at the time. And I think that that, um, uh, you know, to be able to do an oral history project or do more interviews with activists um, uh, is a totally worthy and be a really interesting project from here on out. But I'm a historian. I like my archives. I wanted to go back and kind of track um, the way people were talking about things. So it's, it's more of an archival approach, but I do think it's very much linked with, um, as you mentioned, you know, not just feminism in Japan, but also kind of current, uh, um, uh, feelings also about just, is there protest in Japan or not, or why, or why not? Um, uh, yeah, so it, it grew over a long period of time. It was my dissertation project. It went through, underwent significant, um, revising to make it readable <laughs> to be a become a book uh and now here it is and and so um i'm thrilled that that people are are excited to to read it and to learn about it well absolutely um it's so many powerful themes inside and for me one of the biggest kind of surprises was how even in the activist movements, even within their own groups, you have the same themes of the fight against femininity versus masculinity and women being put into feminine mothering roles, even within the activist movement, how there was a very little flexibility in those stiff gender guidelines, which you see played out in all aspects of Japanese society. And I've been since the early 90s in Japan, and this is very, you know, prevalent everywhere in every aspect of work and life. And then even in the activist movement, that was really an eye-opener for me that I didn't expect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that what interested me is that um, a lot of young women who joined this movement, you know, they, they realized they lived in a sexist society. And one of the things I wanted to push back on just a little bit is that women who got involved in, in um, the radical student movement in the 60s, um, it's not like they didn't know about sexism and it, it took feminism in the 70s to discover it, right? I mean, we know that that feminism is is um, uh, a long-standing kind of uh, tradition that that really is rooted in in the construction of of modern society. Like, what do you do with um, women? How much can women participate in public space? How much are women? How much is the idea of the universal kind of democratic subject or the universal kind of individual actually constructed around a, a male? ideal or male experience, right? Um, because that individual subject doesn't allow for any sort of moments of vulnerability or, or, or um, anything like that. So, uh, and a certain class of, of male individuals. So, 
So, um, and often certain race, but um, so, so feminism has, you know, it didn't just like drop out of the sky in 1970. Sometimes my students kind of think that's the case. Or if those who know, know a little bit more history, they think, okay, like there's Hiratsuka Daicho, Yosano Akiko in the pre-war, and then there's nothing. And then there's the seventies. Um, so something I wanted to push back on is that, you know, these young women were very aware that they lived in a sexist society, but I think that, um, they really thought that in a radical movement that was questioning and radical in the sense of getting back to the root of things that was like questioning, you know, really basic stuff about the structure of society and the role of, you know, where does the affluence of post-war Japan come from? What comes from these wars being waged by the U.S. military in in Asia? And where does, uh, you know, the, the university, what is the role of knowledge at the university in perpetuating these wars? And asking all these radical questions, uh, I think they were prepared to, you know, put the, the revolution first and then just assume that women's, that, that these uh, uh, sexist male chauvinistic kind of uh, frameworks would shift. Um, but then when they be- came to, together to talk about this stuff, they realized that actually there was just this unarticulated carryover from mainstream society and not just this carryover that was kind of unconscious or, or subconscious, but, um, but also a very, uh, aggressive, as you mentioned. Yeah. Like there was a very aggressive embrace of a masculine kind of culture of revolution. So when I say I come from it, from a gender perspective also, right. Like it's also thinking about what does not just, you know, women's experiences, but like, what does femininity constitute here and what does masculinity mean? Um, because I think for a lot of young men and uh, a lot of, of, men on the far right as well, this question of like, well, what becomes of men if they're just domesticated into becoming these like salary men and stuff like that. And this idea of, of revolution became a kind of masculinist ideal also. Yeah. And then femininity was considered weak. You've got a great story. I mean, so many great stories in there, but a great story about a time when uh, activist female was saying, I'm not going to clean, I'm not going to make the rice balls. And some of the men, male students were saying, no, that's your job. You have to do it. And then another male student said, no, no, but wait, she makes speeches. She does the masculine roles. So that's okay. She doesn't have to kind of exceptionalism based on the idea of certain roles of activism being more masculine than feminism, feminine. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. So it's, it's so complicated. It's not just like women do this, men do this. It's, it's more, it's deeper. It's, it defines who is speaking and if they're speaking there, they might be, able to be more like men or uh, and then the whole concept of if you raise up women you're gonna have to take away from men which you know you see in all the argument about female students ruining the university system that you talk about so it's really complex isn't it yeah this idea that there's a zero-sum game um and that if you if you uh have more women in certain roles than then of course men's position will suffer is a long-standing fear right and I mean I was so shocked yeah I wrote about this co-eds ruin the nation or like a women ruining the nation um kind of a theory you know it was it was it was a tabloid sort of theory but it had this long afterlife and deep influence and um I was just so shocked with the recent uh, I mean, I was I was shocked, but not shocked with the the recent. Um, uh, sorry, it was the the uh, Tokyo Medical University um, uh, scandal where they they uh, you know imposed this quota on how many uh, young women could be admitted because they were like, well, further down the pike, um, we're going to have less university. Uh, physicians. And I looked into that. And I think actually, there's a very strong case to be made that that um, it's more about the labor conditions at university hospitals. And the fact that many physicians, male and female get really burned out by their 40s at university hospitals. So it's like, uh, yeah, women become these scapegoats 
um, and this way to not actually look at, well, well, what is it we're trying to do with this uh, discipline or with this knowledge or sending people to university? And what are we trying to, what is the actual labor situation? Because if the idea is like women are going to ruin uh, university hospitals because you can't overwork them because they'll just say no, then maybe you need to look at the labor conditions at the hospital, right? Or if women are going to ruin uh, uh, in the case of the, the COAs ruin the, um, nation theory, it was proposed by humanities professors who said that women letting more women in to study the humanities would ruin Japanese culture, um, because women wouldn't use their knowledge. They would just go into the domestic sphere. Um, but women really were functioning as the scapegoats because this is the moment when the humanities were actually being attacked or actually, um, suffering, or being uh, getting budgets cut and having less uh, applicants because of the rise of uh, technology studies and the the government emphasis on putting more people into studying technology in the 1960s. And so it's just a way to kind of displace the, you know, instead of having a discussion about why do we have the humanities and what's the important of the humanities to just turn around and blame more young women it's yeah. often this kind of scapegoat yeah, yeah. And that brings us to one of the women that you uh bring up a few times because her influence was so per pervasive in over a long period of time was michiko kamba um kanda michiko and oh, uh, kamba kamba and sorry she she talks about um that economic aspect of women having to step back from industry to have children or to will always be the problem with true equality. That was really interesting. Um, can you tell us a bit about her? Because she's quite an important key person. Sure. So, so Kamba Michiko, and let's see if we can find her, her photo in here too. Um, Kamba Michiko, I don't know if we have her. Um, she, uh, she was an undergraduate at um, University of Tokyo, and she was very active in the student movement um, there, uh, and part of the what I identify as kind of the early New Left. Um, and she was uh, the daughter of a, a Chuo University professor, and so she came from this kind of um, intellectual uh, class uh, Christian family. Um, and she she died quite young. She died uh, on um, June fifteenth, nineteen sixty, in a clash between. Uh, the police and activists outside the diet as as protesters were were crashing into the actual diet compound. Um, and uh, so she died at 22. And so what we can know about her or say about her is it, kind of limited. Um, and uh, but something I did want to do with this project is take seriously as intellectual history what young people wrote. I think that often we are very dismissive of what young people um, write or of young people's activism. And I think that actually young people are very much um, uh, at, at, at exactly this pressure point um, within our society. They are, are facing this intense socialization process. And, uh, and there's no guarantee things are going to work out for them, right? Like for older people, we're kind of like, well, if you do this, 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 you get to this point, because that's what happened for me. Um, and uh, so I actually think that taking seriously what young people write and think about and their activism is very important in general. Um, so even though she died quite young, I did want to look at, at what she wrote, because with her death, as I write about, she became kind of a maiden martyr. She was um, really transformed into this symbolic uh the symbol of post-war democracy, the fragility of post-war democracy. But when I look back and read what she wrote, she had really incisive um, social critiques. And as you mentioned, um, you know, she, she very much wanted to emphasize uh, class and groups of people um, over just an idea that, um, for example, post-war democracy and peace is just every individual's responsibility. She wanted to talk about, well, we need to think about, you know, who... Um, you know, it was partially kind of about war responsibility, right? Like that kind of evades the fact that wars happen because certain people are interested in wars. You know, who are these people who are interested in wars happening? It's not like every individual is equally implicated in that. But yeah, something else she mentioned is that, you know, unless, uh, you know, 
I was very impressed. She, she says, you know, it's not like capitalists in post-war Japan. Um, everybody's talking about these feudal remnants, right? Like that, that they just have this feudal mindset. And she's like, it's not, if it was feudalism, um, then it, it wouldn't be perpetuated because these capitalists in post-war Japan are actually very interested in making money and succeeding. And like they would, they'd be able to overcome any feudalism that didn't serve that. So we have to think about like, well, what is this feudalism that is actually serving their needs? And uh, she did mention that, that there's just going to be this barrier unless you think about, well, she doesn't use the term, but we might use the term today, care work, right? Unless you think about how are you going to feed people? Because right now the solution, the solution in her time is that you're going to have a woman at home or, or you're going to try to have a, a woman at home to cook and how are you going to take care of children and how are you going to take care of the fact that people have to take time of work away from work to give birth and take care of children. And that's just, that's just, um, the heart of the issue again and again. And I mean, it, uh, you know, um, whether the solution is, I think she kind of proposed like, uh, you know, um, dining halls and canteens and stuff like that. And, um, I mean, whether that's the solution that everybody would be able to embrace or not, I mean, I'm not sure about that. But um, I think what's quite interesting to me is the way that this is this is kind of the heart of of the question is like how we reproduce ourselves as people. It is it, it's not efficient to have babies and to raise children and to take care of each other. And then when you realize that that's not efficient, maybe efficiency is not the point. Yeah, powerful. Um, I think one of her main points was about the need for childcare and mm-hmm. uh, childcare and communal eating spaces would really help with equality. And um, that whole idea, which comes up with, with other people later on and is still such a relevant issue for Japan and one of the biggest hurdles for working women, working mothers um, to try to even maintain their work because they can't find childcare. This yeah. is this is something she's talking about in the early 1960s, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, actually think she may have written this. She probably wrote this in the late 1950s. Yeah, these issues are, are continually rediscovered. And I think that the longer that I live my life as a feminist scholar, the more frustrating it is because, you know, when you're in your 20s and you first hear about this and you're like, yeah, okay, we've yeah, now we've got this analysis and now now something will happen with it. <laughs> it doesn't happen, you know? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and I think that this actually, I think to bring this kind of into the present day, I think it also has to do with the fact that um, this labor is not respected also. So, um, you know, as we've been talking, there's all been all this talk about essential workers under covid and uh, it's just become so clear to me that you have to not just create more childcare positions in Japan, but but have them um, uh, pay better and be more respected also. Yeah. And elderly care positions, too. And it's it's also something that comes up again and again is is also the media's influence on the perception of female activists or female leaders. And we still see this today. It's so frustrating. Um, You're either too aggressive. I mean, we see this all over the world. If you're a female leader, you're either too aggressive, um, you're crazy, or you're dangerous. Right? Whereas a a male leader is doing the same exact thing would be considered um, a real leader and an inspiration and passionate, you know, all the positive words. So I I thought all the examples that come up again and again in the book of of those comparisons between male leaders and female leaders in Japan and the activism world is really interesting and very insightful. Um, and the credit that women don't give you, you gave a great example of a of a male activist who became very prominent and with, of course, the support of his wife. And then after he died, she did an interview saying, I, you know, I, I would have liked if he would acknowledge my help and my support all these years, you know, it's really the invisible, the invisibility of, of this. And. 
I think something that was actually a rather late insight for me in my research, um, and but once I realized it, it, it's the one that I really can't unsee, and it's the one that I feel like is perhaps the most important. Um, and it's not just like my insight. I also came to this insight through reading a lot of recent research about, for example, the civil rights movement in the United States, um, because you know, the mass media is implicated in this too, because the mass media at the time is always looking for a leader. Even if a movement says it's a leaderless movement, they're always looking for a leader or somebody to, to be in front of something. Um, and, uh, and they always have their, their own kind of, they tend to latch on to, to, to men in, in many cases. And if they, if they latch onto women, yes, they often kind of portray them as, as excessive in some kind of stereotypically feminine way. Um, but but also, I think scholars are implicit in this also, and, and I mean, are complicit in this also, which is which means that, you know, we we start with looking for texts and um, texts are very important. Um, but um, that also means we're looking for who wrote it. And then we also have to be thinking about the fact that to sit down and write requires already this structure, right? Like that you've had the time, you have the time to write and whatnot. And one of the the young women I wrote about, Tokoro Mitsuko, who was of the same generation as Kamba, but she uh, died of a kind of an unrelated, like a, a non-activist related disease, but she also died rather young, about 30. Um, and she wrote a bit more because she was a bit older. Um, she wrote about, for example, her parents, and both of her parents had met through being um, involved in like leftist, like labor union activism in the pre-war period. But her mother had had several children and her father continued with labor activism. And then he wrote his own memoir. And then he, she realized that her mother was just this life taken out of history. She lived a history less, less existence because she didn't write her things. So so um, scholars have to be careful because we can be complicit in perpetuating this idea that the that the thought is in only in these texts written down. Um, so the insight I, that I actually haven't even said yet, though, is that is that a sustained movement uh, requires care and requires the person who's going to make the cups of coffee or the rice balls. Right. And it requires the person who's going to drive you from meeting to meeting and keep the schedule. It requires this, these roles, this requires this uh, jail support or mimeographing, like reproducing these flyers. And arguably that's actually the more important work for a sustained movement because writing a passionate tract, of course, like is important and words can be really powerful or giving an impassioned speech or something like that. Um, yeah, that that's really great. But like, if your movement is going to be more than a one-off protest or like a one publication, it's that daily, everyday work that's so important. And that's the stuff that gets erased. And then what, what I realized in doing this research is it's not only that it gets erased, it also is not considered real activism. Right. In this case, with with um, a lot of the activism being considered, well, are you wearing a, a are you wearing a helmet and are you like, do you have your gewalt stick, your like violence stick? And are you going and like clashing with the police and with other um, activist groups? And and those spectacles are like very exciting to think about happening. Um, and that's socially important that there was that that happened, that that actually got a certain amount of kind of popular approval. Um, in Japan. Um, but it was really the like daily for them to maintain these barricaded spaces and organize those spectacles. They had to have like the people who were cleaning up, the people who were making onigiri, the people who were going out to buy instant ramen and lemons t- for them to like put on their eyes after they get tear gassed and stuff. So um, that was kind of the aha moment where it's like, well, we really need to be thinking about um how these movements get perpetuated over time and finding the traces and finding that takes a little bit more work though. I I found the profile of her and then another woman you talk about later. Um, can't find my note. The Gavalt Rosa. Kashiwazaki as well. But, uh, you know, I found this whole concept that Tokoro was talking about 
about nurturing and the need to have support networks, the need to have nurturing, but not necessarily only coming from women being key right mm-hmm. that that's of yeah. course and you you see that in modern japan if a man takes paternity leave that can really help push the line a little bit more than a woman taking maternity leave you know like having people on male and female leaders both doing nurturing roles both taking that supportive role can really yeah. Have a good, very positive influence. If it's only women all the time, and then the expectation that it、mm-hmm. should only be women is perpetuated, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that,、um, yeah, I think that, that emphasizing that the nurturing and Tokoro's, you know, she's, she's writing in her time. So she has a little bit of this essentialism, but she does emphasize that it's not only, so she calls it women's logic, this logic of nurturing and care. But she does emphasize that also men can implement women's logic just as women can, you know, go out and do and act according to men's logic, which she might kind of call liberal feminism or something, maybe.、Um, and I guess something that in doing something else in doing this project, I did want to emphasize is that um, the, the, that there needs to be a, a large collective social solution. I think what I really admired about the student movement. And that when I teach about this, so when I teach about this, I often teach to students who are maybe not openly hostile to、um, the idea of a student movement, but are very wary. And, and、uh, student activism of this period doesn't have like a great reputation in Japan、um, because of the incredible violence、uh, of the movement、um, and, uh, and, and other things. I also talk about kind of the, the policing, kind of this grassroots policing.、Um, Uh, successes and whatnot, too. But、um, so when I approach teaching this to students, I just tell them that what I think is fascinating about what these young people often did and how they started to think about the world around them is they started to kind of get curious about what they could have and what was around them and how it was linked to geopolitical situations, right? So they were thinking about, like, wow, Japan is really affluent now. And, like, where. How is this possible? Oh, this is possible because markets are being opened up in places like Southeast Asia. They're being opened up forcibly by US military power. Where, how is this US military power being deployed? Oh, it bases in US military occupied Okinawa and it bases in mainland Japan. And like, are we okay with that? You know, like, and, and I, I say, you know, you can, you can begin to think about that in the world around you right now. You can think about The production chains associated with plastic, or like where are your clothes made? Who made them? Do you know what, under what conditions that person made that? Like, you know, so, so I think that that kind of like line of questioning、um, to me is so interesting. And then once you start to think about,、um, yeah, the people behind like who made what you're wearing, who made the plastic that you're using, where is it going to go from there?、Um, Uh, and, uh, you know,、um, that, that was really,、uh, that's really where I began to, to teach about it. And this is also why I think that this learning about this also helps us think about how, how like we also need to be thinking about it as a society, right? So it's not enough for any one of us to pull back and be like, well, I'm just not going to use plastic anymore. That's great. But you, but that still doesn't solve. The issue you need to to kind of come together and figure out a larger issue because it's so interconnected, right? And,、uh, yeah, that was one of the, the big questions I had、um, after finishing the book and thinking, why isn't there more activism now? Because there are still the main reasons why there was so much activism in the 60s,、um, men and women, university students. Are very similar to things happening in today's world. But、yeah. what, what has changed in post war Japan versus you know, modern culture in Japan? Has the education shifted so much? Like, what really is at the, the base of it? A lot、mm-hmm. of the female activists in the book that come after Kanda san、um, used her as an example for why they became activists. Mm hmm. So, maybe、mm-hmm. there's not also there's not a legacy、mm-hmm. of growing up 
having a female role model or any activist role model to look up to mm-hmm. as you grow up um, could also be an influence. But definitely with climate change, with um, inequality in society, a lot of the impetus of peace, um, anti-U.S. military, um, it's still very relevant in Japan. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it hasn't gone away. And if anything, like things in some senses are, um, rather than saying worse, I would say like more entrenched, maybe. Um, and there are a few things I've been thinking about, because this is one of these big questions for me, too. Um, and I haven't embarked on like a serious scholarly inquiry, but but first of all, I think that there is a broken legacy. Like, as you mentioned, people in the late 1960s, a lot of them read Kamba. A lot of them thought, like, the social role of a university student is to be an activist, right? Like, like this is when the time when you have time to, like, think about social problems and, like, engage in that way. Um, and uh, so there's a broken legacy. And I think that that, in part, has to do with the idea that activism is going to end up being really extreme and that's a negative legacy as well and that's that's basically the the fear that you're going to start with a street demonstration and you're going to end up like the united red army in like a a mountain like um your your like mountain retreat like killing your own and it's really gruesome and it and it was truly ugly and and uh shocking but also that's not you know, that's not like a a straight line. It's not, that's a a small group of people. That's not like everybody who showed up on the street ended up killing their colleagues or something like that. So, um, so uh, that's kind of become this like standard narrative. And in some ways I see that as like a very much like a police narrative of, of um, protest because, uh, you know, policing protest in post-war Japan was a really tricky thing because protest was illegal in the pre-war period. So um, the police were constantly like, how much of this do we let happen? Like, what do we do? And like, um, I, and uh, that's, a, that's a whole nother story. I think the policing of, of post-war Japan is a fascinating story. Um, but then I think there's, there's something else. So, so when I've asked actually like students who are involved with Fridays for the Future and I've asked them, well, why do you think it's hard for you to get people to come out to street demonstrations. And they've said like, well, you don't want to be labeled an activist, like a katsudoka, right? They talk about themselves as organizers, not activists. And that's this, um, uh, yeah, uh, negative legacy or broken legacy. But I also think that youth in Japan are in a very different position. I think it's very hard for them to feel empowered. And I've talked to former student activists from the 1960s who will be like, kids today, like, don't go out and and protest. And and I think that they don't really realize how precarious youth today are feeling in Japan. I mean, even though employment rates are rather high, um, there's just not really this, the same kind of affluence like that, that um, even though those activists were protesting against the geopolitical violence that underpinned their affluence, they did benefit from that affluence. And uh, young people today are very frightened about their futures. And that's, that's, um, that's okay like, for them to feel that way, right? Like, uh, they need, um, uh, they need older people to, to ease up on the pressure on them. They, they're under a tremendous amount of pressure. But then I also think it's hard for them to feel empowered because there just aren't as many of them, right? And so there was this youth movement I wrote about in the 1960s. There, they were baby boomers. There were just a lot of young people. And uh, Japan is the first world's first super-aged society. And how do you help young people feel empowered in a super-aged society? I mean, how do you make young people feel empowered when... I mean, if you turn on TV or you ride a train, I mean, the mass, the the bulk of ads are focused at um, elderly people. They have the money and like they are, there are more, more of them. And uh, so this, this does create a, a kind of a conundrum for young people in Japan, I think. Yeah. So um, how would you empower 
the youth. I don't think they feel like their votes really count too that's, in that sense. Yeah, it's really interesting. You you mentioned um, about Fridays for the Future. And, uh, of course, that comes from an outside influence. That comes from Greta Thunberg. Mm -hmm. um, and how she has sparked movements around the world, including Japan. And one of the things that you talk about in the book with Tokoro Mitsuko, she says, reject the Superman, trust the ignorant. And I yeah. wonder if the persona of Greta Thunberg somehow struck a chord. You see a lot of female activists now. Um, doing Friday for the Future in Japan um, struck a chord with them that you don't have to be loud. You can do protest in a quiet way, in a respectful way. And I think maybe that kind of falls in line with how they want to be in their lives now in modern Japan, mm -hmm. perhaps. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that, that there are many forms of protests. I think another thing that I, that you're reminding me now that I didn't mention is that I think there's also a sense that going out in the streets is not an effective form of protest because people did pour into the streets in the late 1960s and it didn't really do much. Um, uh, in in And so that's, I think, also on people's mind. And, you know, maybe that's correct. Like, I, I don't really know. I mean, I'm, I, uh, I love a demonstration. Like, I love, like, the, the feeling that, that you feel when you go out with a group of people and you make your signs and you uh, take up space in the world. You know, I, I just really think that's really powerful. But I recognize that that's, that's a question of affect. That's a question of personal feeling. And that's not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean that going out in the street is like the more effective way to demand change, right? Because also you could just say, well, I went out in the street and I made my sign and phew, I done, right? Like I did my thing and now my job is done. And and again, like it's the daily <laughs> stuff that's so important. So um, so it could be that, that there's a, a different way forward. And again, this is why I think we need to take young people seriously as intellectual actors, um, because they will have their own kind of like responses in terms to like affect and in terms of effect, like what kind of effects they think are important. Um, uh, and, you know, I mean, activists are always going to be activists. I, question, I think a question, it's a question of if they are, their voices are amplified or not. And if their voices are amplified, it's not always to the benefit of the movement also. Um, so, I, you know, I'm a scholar, so I like to, like, complicate things. <laughs> and I think people would rather, like, <laughs> nobody except for scholars likes to have a more complicated view of things. But I think we need to, like, hold the complexity of this open you know, and just, like, recognize that, like, there is this history, um, and and uh, we can learn from it. Not maybe to like take it and implement it as some like program for today, but we can yeah think about like well what's different between then and now, and to have um, uh, you know and draw inspiration from certain people's lives, even if you recognize that they were flawed or they made certain mistakes. Um, that can feel really important to feel like you're not the first person who sees a problem. Absolutely. Yeah. And to realize that both men and women, um, all humans are complex and all women are not exactly this one way and all men are not exactly this one way. And one of the huge takeaways for me after reading this book and all these amazing examples and historical truths is that without quotas, which make it illegal not to give women equality, nothing's going to change, especially not in Japan. You know, it's a mm -hmm. ridiculously low level of gender equality in Japan compared to all other countries in the world. And yeah. one of the problems is this idea that women are this way, women's roles are like this, and men's roles are like this, and men are the breadwinners, and men are the basis yeah. of the economy. These are problems for going forward with yeah. gender equality. And that's so clear 
from your book and it's such a important lesson we all need to be reminded of and the reason to push for quotas in government to have 50% female representation without representation there is no equality right yeah yeah I mean I think that um I mean, I I become more and more convinced that Japan needs quotas as the time passes, because the original promise, I think, in 2014 was 30% of women on, on um, you know, in position, leadership positions by 2020, right? And now we're in 2021. We're nowhere near that. And there are a lot of, you know, there, there are these like kind of carrots suggested, but not really sticks. And... Um, what a quota does is it creates a cohort, right? Because there's been a lot of tokenism. And as you mentioned, like not all women are the same thing, right? And I mean, I don't, I mean, not all women are feminists. And um, some of the the women that have been able to rise to positions of leadership and power within the Liberal Democratic Party are not um, women I agree with at all about policies, Right. Um, but it is about having a cohort so that you don't have um, uh, one woman leader and then you say, well, she's a good leader, so all women, so she's representing all women. Or are you sure she's a bad leader, so women shouldn't be leaders? You know, it's it's really about um, having a cohort, having a diversity of, of viewpoints and um, uh, and I would also say that in, in Japan, and I, I, I think that in my book, I perhaps replicate this discourse of the gender binary because I'm looking at materials in the 60s and because people are discussing this in terms of like men, women, men, women. But I do want to know, as a historian, I am talking about women as a social category. So I'm talking about these expectations of how the role women are supposed to play in societies. And you see all these women who are pushing back um, and and are, are often not able to push back because the ideas are so strong and things like that. But I also think that in, in Japan, along with quotas, there needs to be more of a discussion about um, how we're going to talk about uh, implementing gender equality that's not danjo kyodo sankaku, because danjo again, is just men and women, and it replicates this binary. And it's not talking about the gendered meanings. And it's not talking about equality. And it's so so um, uh, I think that this gets elided when there when the the cabinet of gender equality translates itself into English as the cabinet of gender equality. So an audience, an English speaking audience thinks, oh, they're dealing with gender equality. But then the Japanese translation is you know, danjo kyodo sankaku, which also could be just, you know, men and women in their roles cooperating. And um, I, yeah, and to be able to get that conversation pushed forward, I think quotas are important. Yeah. And, you know, not just men and women quotas, but like you say, more, we need more ambiguity. Does it have to be strictly men and women? Do we have to put men and women or girls and boys in certain roles from education level? Do girls all have to do home ec and boys don't? How about everybody just do home ec and everybody just do, you know, like get rid of strict gender roles because we know in reality, a lot of people do not feel that they are one particular gender or another. And now we see, you know, like equal rights for marriage for for gay people in Japan. Um, we see women who have more flexibility and not having to change their name. So we do have some progress, some little hints of progress here and there. But I, I think, yeah, you're right. We need more kind of sweeping change from education level, from the very, you know, lowest part of when people are... Uh, built into the people they become by society. Mm -hmm. Government has a role, education has a role, communities, mass media, definitely, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, But recently at the schools, they're talking about uh, gender-neutral uniforms. You know, these these are little rays of hope, I think. Yeah. I mean, and as someone who 
went to high school for a year in Japan and wore a skirt all through winter, I really wish I could have worn trousers instead. That's, that's really great. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think that like emphasizing that there are certain human skills, like, I mean, knowing how to cook is, is just so important. Like knowing how to feed yourself, uh, healthy food and knowing how to cook for other people, um, uh, is really just a, a life skill. Right. And I mean, it's really, um, uh, and that's also not to say that there aren't spaces to explore and enjoy femininity or masculinity. Um, but that, uh, you know, I think also something that's been interesting is as I'm getting older personally, like, um, that we also need to think about ideologies of age and how they intersect with, with gender and like class and ethnicity and race. Um, because, and this is why also this, this book is about, you know, the female student. She's, she's young, she's a certain class, she's ethnically Japanese. Um, and how does that all overlay into creating this kind of meaning at this moment? Um, because also as I get older, uh, you know, it's actually been a kind of fun or interesting thing to think about uh, androgyny, like think about like becoming kind of like an androgynous, um, I, I, or like post, I don't know how to say this, like post childbearing years, like androgynous you know female elder or something you have have a great example (laughs) in the book about how one of the groups uh both men and women would dress the same they'd have the same haircuts right and yeah and to have more equality visually from the outside so people like police or observers had no idea if it was a boy or a girl and that that was really interesting to yeah to hear that so that case in the book, I don't even think it was like kind of a planned thing by the group, but because a lot of the student activists, when they would go to protests, everybody, and this is why also it's kind of interesting to look through photos for the book, because in some cases at the protests, everybody kind of looks androgynous in a sense. Like some of the boys had longer hair. It was the sixties, right? And this was a big moral panic. It's like, boys have long hair, girls have short hair. What's a boy? What's a girl? And, um, it's important to remember that, yeah, these like moral panics about like, how are we going to sort people out and know who's who, so we know how to treat them. Um, I, this is, yeah, this is about um, uh, creating these these categories that human experience really defies uh, often. And, and yeah, so so the police were complaining or um, were talking about how you just don't even know if you're arresting a boy or a girl because everyone's in jeans and has long hair and a helmet and like a towel over their face or something like that. Yeah. Hi, Kitty. <laughs> yeah, the Kitty wanted to join in for a little bit. Um, yeah, that that whole idea of of being neutral to the outside observer. Yeah. And I think we have to own this sense of bias. We have to own that we have bias in society. Uh, Mm -hmm. that our communities are biased. They see men and women in different ways, that our whole social structure, um, government bureaucracy is biased. As -hmm. as a teacher for many years at university, I would ask students to write their names on the back of the paper. Because as a teacher, I owned my bias. I knew I had bias favoring some, disadvantaging others for whatever reason. So I, I knew that about myself. I guarded against it. Now, what can we do in society to guard against our own bias that we, we need to own? That's the big yeah. question, right? Yeah, I think, I think that, that um, being able to talk about it, and I think as a historian, I think understanding the history is really important. Like, I think that um, so recently, uh, because of, um, uh, you know, I, I do Japanese history and there I've been feeling a little bit like there's, um, it's not necessarily hypocrisy because I think that at this point, I, I mean, I've spent so much time in Japan that it's, it's like hard to, 
to necessarily say that I'm even from California anymore, but um, I am, I'm from California, but I've been doing a little reflecting on like the history of the town I grew up in, in California. And um, I think that it's just so important to trace processes by which these, these biases, you know, because, because I guess also because I believe that there needs to be a social reckoning, right? Like as an individual, um, uh, you can, you can constantly be like having conversations with yourself, having conversations with your friends and stuff like about, about this stuff. Um, but I, I do want to emphasize that that needs to be linked. I mean, that's not, not that that's important, but it needs to be linked with larger social things. And so I've been reflecting on, on what has been made invisible in the history of, um, for example, my, my town, which had, uh, which had a large presence. Uh, so my town is Folsom, California, and it has a large prison, right? So it's also part of the prison industrial complex in California today, and all those racialized meetings there. But also, it had a large uh, community of black gold miners that left, and that had their own very interesting history related to a lot of them came from the South. And a lot of them um, would use their earnings to buy freedom for people who were still in the South or by their own freedom. And this was the history that, you know, you learn the California West, you learn the West is just open and free for the taking. And like, it's not like linked to these other places. Like Californians can often really look down on the American South as having its like slavery problem, but it's linked. And then also, um, you know, a history of anti-Chinese sentiment. And like, there are so many towns in California that ran out the Chinese populations. And so, um, so what is the kind of point I'm making? I'm making that, that, uh, you know, when we think about history only as heritage, then we're not like examining the historical processes by which we come to inherit certain biases. And, um, and that doesn't like, mean that we don't have individual responsibility to try to address this stuff. But I think that also understanding how we also are created by um, the stories we're told about the past and what those stories leave out. And, um, and to yeah. realize that we have a role being privileged as well. Yeah. And yeah. try not to replicate the same mistakes of the past. You know, that's that's one of the beautiful yeah. things about this book is there's so many horrible stories in here that we really should know, that we really should remember, and we should be thinking about and planning for how we can do it better. You know, yeah. build build yeah. on the lessons of the past, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And then that in that sense, then, you know, you're not shocked or blindsided when you see like, I don't know, anti-Asian violence in Japan in uh, the States or when you see um, uh, I mean, you can have moral outrage, but you're not or or, you know, cases of sexist discrimination in universities in Japan. Uh, you should maintain a sense of moral outrage, I believe. But also you can say like there's a precedent to this. And so this I, you know, like so all these different explanations, again, to return to the kind of Tokyo Medical University case, all these different explanations about like what women at the university would do. It's like this is old. Like these are old, old explanations and they didn't hold water then and they don't hold water now. Um, yeah, it, it helps you understand how to. Uh, yeah, not replicate um, these things. And and yeah, it is it is a hugely privileged position to be able to take the time to research and write this also. Yeah, my book is also a product of an immense amount of care work undertaken by other people caring for me and making time for me too. Yeah. And to think about and to appreciate those that support you when you are able to be a leader, when you are able to move forward in your career, uh, whether you're a man or a woman, to appreciate the support and sacrifices of those around you. That's huge, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think that to, to also, I think this is something that, that, that needs to be remembered also is that once you get to a position, I mean, for example, now for me, I have tenure and I have um, job security, but it was a really open question for me for a long time. And uh, I know so many scholars in the humanities who are really struggling and are really precarious. And 
I've had, I have to work to shed my mindset of like, I still have to hustle and I still have to like do this and, and think about how to support people who are, who actually remain precarious now that I'm in this position. Um, yeah, I mean, for, for what I wrote to actually be meaningful beyond like a historical analysis, I feel like I do have to, yeah, be responsible to do that work too. Well, what, what you've written, what you've published is so important and I appreciate it so much. Thank you for getting it out there. When I was trying to research for this talk, I realized how there is nothing out there about this whole period in English. Um, there's probably a lot of research you had to do in Japanese to get it. And I think these stories really need to be told from Japan and it's it's part of the world's history um, that these female activists went through and hopefully we can all learn from. Thank uh, you so thank much. Thank you I'm, so much, yeah. I'm thrilled that it's, that it's um, out there in English. I wish, like I <laughs> kind of joke, I wish that my 16-year-old self could have read this and then worked on, maybe I would have worked on something else. But um, I, yeah, I mean, there is more and more interesting stuff about the 60s coming out in English. Some of it is on academic presses, and that can be a little bit more expensive. But um, it is very encouraging to see more people uh, working on that. Uh, the question is if this will get translated into Japanese. I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure what the reaction would be. Um, uh, I've presented it on Japanese, but um, I'm just thrilled that that you found it uh, interesting. Um, I'm thrilled In to share those stories. Interesting, horrifying, but yet <laughs> inspiring. And I'm so glad I read it because there's a lot of stuff in here. Um, anybody living in Japan or interested in Japan, any woman anywhere can definitely take a lot of the truths from these stories and apply it to their situation for sure. Very applicable. Right. I'm just, I'm happy to hear that these, uh, stories of these very passionate activists is, uh, is, is being heard by many different kinds of people. Wonderful. Well, we've had some nice comments. Donna says, uh, from Periscope, thanks for joining Donna. A really important discussion today. I have the book on order. Can't wait to read it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jim on Facebook says, many thanks. I've really appreciated and learned from this interview. All the best. Thank you, Jim. It's so wonderful you. that, you know, I mean, it must have been such hard work. How long? I want to know how long it <laughs> took you to research all of that. Oh, my gosh. So, so, I mean, the research started in terms of just kind of like background reading stuff in 2008, probably. But then the archival research happened in 2011. And I was in I was based in Tokyo when the March 11th happened. So I guess there was a little bit of a hiccup or, you know, there was kind of a recovery sort of a period there. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's really... I, I, I'm supposed to be researching my second book now or I'm starting my second project now, but there's very much this like, do I, like how do you start research on a second project knowing how much work it is? It's almost, to me, I mean, I told you earlier, sometimes a book feels like a kid, like there's like this, a book, book is a baby and a baby is a book kind of thing. And like, um, I'm, a, I'm a one, I'm a one and done in terms of children. I love children, but, um, there are a lot of work and I I hope I'm not one and done with the book but it is like after having one child like realizing how much work it is and it gives you pause because you're so naive before you have one child and I was so naive before I wrote one book and so the question is like well do I yeah how do I how do I make the time and make kind of these sacrifices to write the next one I think you really have to care I think it's the fire in the belly I think that if somebody um once the topic hooks you and you just feel compelled, like you will um, chase it if you have the source, the resources, right? If you have the support to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad you do. And I'm glad you made the time. And everybody who's watching, definitely go check out Coed Revolution. It's now uh, available on Amazon and yeah. any booksellers, right? Yeah, and I think I I hope it should be in you know the the English language sections of Japanese bookstores, if not this second, very soon. Um, so uh, so yeah, if you can support a book a bookseller, a local bookseller, please do that. Yeah, 
And I would also refer people to your wonderful website where you talk about your research that you're doing in other areas, which I hope you'll come back and talk about another time. Happily, yes. Wonderful. And uh, other work that you're doing. So thank you so much. Keep up the great work. Thank you for thank joining. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to talk with you today. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, this Friday is our, our next talk with Dave in Osaka. He's a very popular live streamer. He's going to give us some tips and some of his travel stories from visiting Tohoku. Uh, to document the 10th anniversary since the Tohoku disaster. So please join us this Friday, 9 a.m. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Thank you. Have a you. great day, everyone. Take care. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, have a look at inboundambassador.com. You can also sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel, Patreon, Buy Me a Coffee, Coffee, or Haps. Have a great day.